what difference do leaders make? What difference do leaders make in the church? There's a story in church history that I think highlights the importance of faithful Christian leadership. During the fourth century, a battle raged within the church regarding the deity of Jesus Christ. The conflict was known as the Arian Controversy. The uh, the controversy was named after Arius, who was a prominent teacher in the church at the time. Arius denied that Jesus was eternally divine. Rather, he said that Jesus was only a God-like creature. Arius believed that Jesus was worthy of honor since he was God's first creation and had been adopted by God as his son. Nevertheless, he claimed that Jesus only remained a creature and was not really God himself. So as this debate raged within the Roman Empire, Constantine called the Council of Nicaea in 325 to address the matter. Thankfully, by God's grace, the council affirmed the biblical teaching that Jesus is one substance with the Father. Jesus said, after all, I and the Father are one. The church held fast to sound doctrine, affirming that Jesus is light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made. Unfortunately, the council's decision did not put an end to the false teaching. Arius continued to teach what he had taught previously, and other teachers also taught this false doctrine that Jesus is not eternally God. Athanasius was a church leader who served in a support role during the Council of Nicaea, and he became bishop of Alexandria in 328, three years after the council. He had helped with the Nicene Creed, and as bishop of Alexandria, he affirmed and defended the decision that was made. He he affirmed and defended that Jesus is God, that you must believe that Jesus is God in order to believe the true gospel. He held fast to that. He was adamant about it. But his resolve to hold fast to the truth would prove costly for him. Constantine, who had more of an ecumenical mindset, if you will, told Athanasius to let Arius back in the church. He wrote to him and said, Since you know my will, grant free admission to all those who wish to enter the church. For if I hear that you have hindered anyone from becoming a member or have debarred anyone from entrance, I shall immediately send someone to have you deposed at my behest and have you sent into exile. Constantine, caring more about the unity of the empire than the faithfulness of the church, told Athanasius, let anybody in. Let anybody who wants to become a member, become a member. It doesn't matter what they believe, what they affirm to be the true gospel. Athanasius was in a predicament. He believed the true gospel. He believed that if someone was going to be a member of the church, they needed to affirm and profess the true gospel. But he was facing pressure from the great Roman emperor to let anybody in. By God's grace, he held fast to his convictions 
and he refused. He refused Constantine. And indeed, he was sent into exile because of his conviction, because he held fast to the truth. Eventually, he was welcomed back, but that was not the end of his trials. That was not the end of his tribulation. One historian wrote, after Constantine's death, his son Constantius, Constantius banished Athanasius from his post several times as punishment for teaching against Arianism. Athanasius found his life in danger quite often as he held the biblical teaching that Jesus is God. Because of his stand, it is said that an epitaph on Athanasius' grave read, Athanasius contra mundum, or Athanasius against the world. Athanasius understood the importance of holding fast to and proclaiming the true gospel, which does not change. And he was willing to stand against the world and suffer for this cause. In doing so, he provided a commendable example of a Christian leader in his day. And the Christians who listened to him, followed him, and obeyed him, honored Jesus along with Athanasius. Our passage today is Hebrews chapter 13, verses 7 through 19. If you have your Bible, I'd encourage you to open up to Hebrews chapter 13. In the book of Hebrews, we have seen how the author of Hebrews urged and exhorted these Christians to hold fast to the truth of the gospel, to hold fast to Christ. He exhorted them to endure trials and suffering, holding on to Jesus, whatever the cost. And in chapter 13, the focus becomes the life together, their life together as a Christian community. What was their life together as a Christian community to look like? And we saw last week that their life together as a Christian community, as a church, was to be marked by love and service and hospitality, purity, godliness, contentment. In our passage today, we see how we glorify Christ through the relationships of Christians and their leaders. More specifically, we are given instructions on how we, as a local church, glorify Christ through elders and members rightly relating to each other. I'm going to read Hebrews chapter 13, verses 7 through 19. I encourage you to follow along. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him, 
then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls. As those who will give an, have to give an account, let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. So I want us to consider four questions that will help us understand and apply this passage. The four questions are, who are the leaders to whom he referred? What is the responsibility of the leaders? What is the responsibility of the members? And how is Christ at the center? So first, who are the leaders to whom he referred? Of course, we don't know the specific people that the author might have had in mind when he said, remember your leaders. There may have been specific people that he and the Christians who received the letter had in mind, leaders who had faithfully proclaimed the word, who had endured in the faith, who had finished the race. And while we don't know the specific leaders he referred to, we can get an idea of the type of leaders he was referring to. He said, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. In the New Testament, we see many different types of leaders fulfilling all kinds of ministry, serving and building up the body of Christ. But in the New Testament, the leaders who were particularly tasked with speaking the word of God were elders. We also see that the terms elder, overseer, and pastor shepherd are used synonymously or interchangeably in the New Testament. For example, in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 to 4, we read, So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. So we see here that elders do the work of shepherding, which is another way of saying pastoring. Elders do the work of shepherding, pastoring, and providing oversight, serving as overseers. We see these are one and the same. And when you read the qualifications for a man to serve as an elder in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus chapter 1, you'll find that most of the qualifications were character qualifications, except for one. Character qualifications refer to things such as he must be a man who's above reproach, the husband of one uh, wife, not given into drunkenness, not violent but gentle, a hospitable, and so forth. But there's one qualification that we might refer to as a competency qualification. The competency an elder must possess is that he must be able to teach. Or as it is stated in Titus chapter 1 verse 9, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may, may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. 
So Athanasius was an example of one who proclaimed the word of God, who taught sound doctrine, and rebuked those who taught false doctrine. Every elder must be able to give instruction in the word of God to hold fast to sound doctrine and to rebuke those who contradict it. And while every elder must be able to teach the word, we see an indication in scripture that some elders devote more time to the preaching of the word than others. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17 says, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. So again, we see that all elders are able, are able to give instruction in sound doctrine, are able to teach. But it seems that there are some who devote more time to laboring in preaching and teaching. And one of the ways we see this play out in the life of our own church is that we have both staff elders and lay elders, with staff elders being able to devote more time and energy to the labor of preaching and teaching. Every elder is involved in word ministry. Every elder is involved in teaching and preaching the word, but some devote more time to the work. And we, when we preach and teach the word, we spend many hours in preparation. It is many hours of laboring over the word that we might rightly understand, rightly teach, and rightly apply the word to the congregation. I'm so grateful that as I look forward to a sabbatical this summer, we have elders who will be preaching the word faithfully here week in and week out. Every single elder will be involved in preaching the word here on Sundays. And so the ministry of the word is central to the life of a church, and the leaders are to ensure that the ministry is carried out faithfully. I think it is also important for us to see that in the New Testament, local churches are led by several elders, or what we call a plurality of elders. In Acts chapter 14, we read about Paul and his traveling companions, and they were traveling from city to city, proclaiming the gospel, making disciples, starting churches, strengthening existing churches. And in Acts chapter 14, verse 23, we read, and when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Elders, plural, in every church. When Paul arrived in Miletus in Acts 20, 17, we read, now from uh, Miletus, or Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. The elders, plural, of the church. In Titus 1, 5, Paul directed Titus, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. And in James 5:14 we read, "Is any one among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church, and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord." The reason I share all these scriptures with you is that so we will all see clearly the pattern in the New Testament is that local churches were led by a plurality, by several, by multiple elders who were responsible to shepherd the flock, who were responsible to provide oversight, to teach the word, to do the work of pastoring. So in the, so the leaders to whom the author referred in Hebrews chapter 13, were likely the elders of their local church. The second question is, what is the responsibility of the leaders? 
The imperatives or commands in this passage are primarily directed to the members of local churches and how they are to respond to leaders. But in those commands, the responsibilities of the leaders become clear as well. From these verses, we see that the responsibility of the leaders are to live a life of faith, to teach, and to oversee. The author of Hebrews told the Christians to imitate the faith of their leaders, which means their leaders provided commendable examples for them to follow. Living a life of faith means trusting wholeheartedly in the Lord. It means seeking first Christ and his kingdom. It means being diligent to study his word, to apply the word to your heart and life, to seek the Lord in prayer, to depend upon him for all things, to seek to walk in righteousness and joyful obedience to him. At the end of our passage, the author said, pray for us. For we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. He said, pray for us. I would say the same thing to the congregation. Pray for the elders. Pray for them. Pray for us so that we might faithfully follow Christ and provide the commendable example that we are called upon to provide. Some of the things I pray regularly for the elders, and I would encourage you to pray as well, are these things. Pray that we will daily walk in repentance for our own sins. We too are sinners in need of God's grace each and every day. And we need to provide a commendable example by walking in repentance for our own sins. Pray for our humility. Pray for us to walk faithfully in repentance. Pray for us to grow in godliness. Pray that according to 1 Timothy 4, 7, we will train ourselves for godliness. Pray that we will walk in righteousness. Pray that we will be devoted to the word, devoted to applying the word to our own hearts and lives. Pray that we will grow in our knowledge and understanding of the word. Brothers and sisters, I ask of you to pray these things for the elders. In addition to providing a commendable example to follow, the leaders must speak the word of God. The ministry of the word is meant to be central in the life of every local church as Christ builds, rules, and strengthens his church through the ministry of the word. Again, we see this throughout the New Testament. On the day of Pentecost, Peter preached the word and 3,000 people were converted and added to the church. In the book of Acts, we see how the church grew as the word of God increased and multiplied. In Romans 1, we read that the gospel is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. In Romans 10, we read that faith comes through hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. We've seen in Hebrews chapter 4, 12, where it says the word of God is living and active sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. In 2 Timothy 4, 1 and 2, Paul said, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. 
Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. I share these verses with you to impress upon you the necessity and power of the ministry of the word for our local church and for every local church. The preaching and teaching of the word has the power to change and transform lives. Sinners are converted through the preaching and teaching of God's word. Christians are led to repent of their sins through the preaching and teaching of God's word. We are encouraged and comforted through God's word. The church is built up through the word. Our unity is based on God's word. The ministry of the word is central. It is necessary and it is powerful. And brothers and sisters, we all need to have this conviction. We need to believe this. We need to believe in the necessity and the power of the ministry of the word. The ministry of the word is essential to the local church and in a healthy church, all members participate and engage in word ministry with elders leading the way. Something else I pray regularly and I would encourage you to pray as well is this. I pray that the spirit empowered ministry of the word would bear much good fruit in the life of our church. That begins with the preaching on the Lord's day, but it does not end there. When I pray for the spirit-empowered ministry of the word and the life of our church to bear much good fruit, I do pray for the preaching, but I also pray for the Bible studies. I pray for the small groups. I pray for the student ministry. I pray for the, the kids' ministry. I pray for the individual conversations between members where we share the word with one another. I pray for the ministry of the word to change and transform lives throughout the entirety of every week. So I want to encourage you to pray to that end as well. Pray for the spirit-empowered ministry of the word to bear much good fruit in the life of our church. Finally, in our passage, we see that leaders are responsible for overseeing. In verse 17, the author says, the leaders are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Keeping watch over souls is a weighty responsibility. One of the most significant ways elders keep watch over souls is by applying the teaching of Hebrews to the lives of the congregation. Again, we have seen in Hebrews the exhortation to hold fast to Jesus Christ, to hold fast to the truth of the gospel, to endure suffering and trials so that we persevere to the end. Elders provide oversight to encourage and exhort members to do this very thing. We want to oversee the church so that the members of the church are holding on to Jesus. John Piper writes, so the aim of spiritual leadership in the church is mainly the salvation of the soul. And that salvation is not seen in the book of Hebrews as a one-time event of decision, but a lifelong battle against temptation and unbelief. The job of the elders of this church primarily is to help you 
persevere in faith and be saved. And so the elders oversee and keep an eye out and watch and pay attention to the members to help members persevere in faith and be saved. And what makes this responsibility even weightier is that leaders will have to give an account to the Lord for how well they provide this oversight. Jesus is the head of the church and the chief shepherd. He bought the church with his own blood and the church is precious to him. As elders, we serve as his under shepherds, knowing that he sees all things, he knows all things, and we will give an account to him. That is not lost on the elders of this church. That is a weighty responsibility. With that in mind, we turn to the burden of this passage, which is how Christians respond and relate to their leaders. The third question is, what are the responsibilities of the members? From these verses, I think we can summarize the responsibilities of members as remember, imitate, listen, and obey. The passage begins with the charge to remember your leaders. And when the author of Hebrews told them to remember their leaders, he may have been referring to past leaders who had since passed away. And he was saying, don't forget them. Don't forget those who have preached the word, who held fast to Jesus, who endured trials, who made it, who finished the race. Don't forget them. Don't forget the example they provided you. Don't forget what they taught you. And I think we can rightly apply this in a whole number of ways. We can think of a whole number of people who have gone before us, taught, who've taught the word, who followed Christ, who finished the race. We can look to church history. We can look at examples of faithful brothers and sisters in Christ in church history who have gone before us and who finished the race. We can think of personal examples in our lives, family members who taught us the word of God and who finished the race. We can think of prior pastors who taught the word and finished the race. We can think of many examples of those who have gone before us, faithfully taught the word, followed Jesus, and finish the race. We are to remember them. And as we remember them, we are to be encouraged to continue and to persevere and to endure. Second, we are to imitate. Follow godly examples. Follow those who joyfully hold fast to Jesus Christ and his gospel. Follow those who study the word, who seek the Lord in prayer. Follow those who seek to walk in righteousness. Follow the example that is provided. Third, listen. In verse 9, the author said, do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings. The proliferation of diverse and strange teaching began early in the history of the church, which is why the church needed courageous leaders like Athanasius, who proclaimed the word of God and contended for the truth. The proliferation of diverse and strange teachings has continued throughout church history and seems to be amplified in our day by media and social media. One trend that has been disheartening for pastors in recent years has been the proclivity amongst some members of churches to start to give their ear to strange and diverse teachings while beginning to ignore and shut out 
the teaching, the faithful teaching of the word in their own local congregations. I know this has happened with me and fellow elders here. I know this has happened with other pastors in other churches. We have seen countless times where members begin to slowly give their ear to strange and diverse teachings contrary to the truth of the gospel and begin to shut out the church and the teaching of the church and almost hold them, the church, at arm's length. This says something we have seen. This is something we've experienced. This is something that is, that is disheartening. And brothers and sisters in Christ, I just want to encourage you, don't do this. I'm not saying don't be aware of what teaching is out there. I'm saying don't give your heart to that. Don't ignore the faithful teaching of the word taking place in the life of the congregation. Begin to give yourselves, give your hearts to strange teaching that is out there in many ways that comes in many forms. Don't be swayed by the changing winds of culture. Don't give your ear to this. Listen to your leaders as they faithfully proclaim the truth of the gospel. Finally, Christians are to submit to and obey their leaders. For some, this command can be hard, and understandably so. Many Christians have had bad experience with Christian leaders who have been harsh or domineering and have used verses such as this one in heavy-handed ways. And I just want to be clear that Christian leaders who are harsh, domineering, who use and abuse verses and texts like this one are an offense to Jesus Christ and do not reflect our chief shepherd. That is not acceptable in any way shape, or form. I just want to be clear that that is something that we as the leaders of this church never want to be heavy-handed. We never want to be heavy-handed with these commands when it says submit and obey to your leaders. We want to be mindful that we serve the chief shepherd who is good, who is kind, who is loving. It doesn't mean we don't have to be direct sometimes. We are commanded to exhort, to rebuke, to call people to repentance. That's not harsh and domineering. That's faithful. We need to be able to differentiate and distinguish. We have a calling to exhort, to call people to repentance, but to do so without being harsh, domineering, without abusing Scripture. So we want to be very careful not to do that. At the same time, we don't want to shy away from teaching this command because this command is God's Word. And God's Word is good. And God's word is good for you. One of the reasons a plurality of elders is important is that it ensures that every member, including the elders, has the opportunity to apply this verse. Well, what do I mean by that? We believe that this command to submit to your leaders and obey your leaders applies to every member, including the elders. I'm not exempt from that. If the elders call me to repentance, I need to submit and obey. We all have that, and the plurality of elders ensures that every individual member, including every individual elder, has to apply this verse, to submit to and obey your leaders. If the elders come to me and say, you need to repent of sin, I need to submit and obey. Or if they come to me and it's, it's not even a sin issue, but they say, hey, we need to add something to your job description. You need to do this thing that you're not doing. Then I need to submit and obey. 
as elders, as a team of elders, there are times when we have to make decisions that require a vote among the elder team that don't require us to be unanimous. And those who are in the minority need to submit and obey the elders. Every elder has to be willing to submit to the elders. So I just want to be clear that when we teach this verse, we're not asking anybody to do something that we too are not willing to do ourselves. Brothers and sisters, we are all called to submit and obey. And what is the reason Christians are called to submit to their leaders? Their leaders keep watch over their souls and must give an account for their work. You need someone to keep watch over your soul. I need someone to keep watch over my soul. This is God's design for the church. God's design for Christians is that they will join themselves to a local congregation where they are accountable to their fellow members and whereby they have elders who keep watch over their souls. Why? Because we all need this. This is one of the many reasons why it is necessary for Christians to pledge themselves to a local church or what we call membership. As elders, we're very aware that we must give an account for those under our care. Well, who does that include? If we have to give an account to the Lord for those under our care, we need to know who that is. Does that include every single person who ever attends a service? I don't think so. I believe that we are accountable to the Lord for how well we shepherd the members of this church. Those who have pledged themselves to this church and have committed themselves to submitting to the elders. I believe those are the people, those are the ones for whom we must give an account to the Lord. Will we seek to do good to everyone? Of course. Of course, we'll seek to do good to everyone. Galatians 6.10 says, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. The elders will seek to do good to everyone, but we have a particular responsibility to the members who have pledged themselves to this congregation and are committed to submitting to the elders of this church. Our members are the ones whom we are praying for regularly. Our member directory is a key tool in our tasks of pastoring and shepherding. We read through our member directories. We pray through our member directories regularly. We keep watch over our members. We're paying attention to whether or not our members are showing up and, and attending service, are participating in the life of the church throughout the week. These are the ones who are keeping an eye on. These are the ones whose souls we know that we must give an account for. So those are the ones who are particularly, we are watching over. Now, is our membership process prescribed in scripture? No. Is what we are seeking to accomplish through our membership practices biblical? Absolutely. If you are a Christian and you are not willing to commit yourself to a particular group of Christians and you are not willing to submit yourself to a particular group of elders, then you are missing a critical component of your discipleship as a follower of Jesus. Jesus is the one who instituted the church. 
Jesus is the one who has given local churches the authority to hold one another accountable. Jesus is the one who calls elders to shepherd the congregation and to give an account for watching their souls. So brothers and sisters, this is Christ's design for every follower of Jesus. For those of you who are members, you are tasked with obeying your leaders so that your leaders may do their work with joy and not groaning. Well, what does that look like? Members bring their leaders joy when they show up for one another, when they pay attention to God's word, when they read and study God's word, when they pray, when they care well for one another, when they love one another, when they pursue unity, when they serve one another, when when the members are faithfully carrying out the pledges that we make in the covenant, it brings great joy to the leaders of the church. We are delighted when we see examples of Christians growing and maturing in their faith, serving and loving one another, seeking to share the gospel with non-Christians. This brings joy. David Mathis writes, here is a beautiful marriage-like vision of the complementary relationship between the church and its leaders. The leaders, for their part, labor. They work hard, and it is costly work for the advantage, the profit of the church. And the church, for its part, wants its leaders to work not only hard, but happily, without groaning, because the pastor's joy in leading will lead to the church's own benefit. The people want their leaders to labor with joy because they know their leaders are working for theirs. Amen. Finally, how is Christ at the center? The responsibility of the leaders and the responsibility of the members and the relationships within the local church community are all centered on Jesus. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus is the head of the church. The church belongs to him. The elders can faithfully lead, teach, and provide oversight in as much as we joyfully submit to him. Jesus does not change. His teaching does not change. Therefore, the elders have a responsibility to point people to Jesus for who he is, who he has revealed himself to be. We do not have the freedom to make Jesus into our own image. We do not have the freedom to pick and choose what teachings of Jesus we like and what we don't like. No, we fully submit to him and we only lead well in so much as that we are faithfully submitting to him and pointing people to him. In so much as we are rightly applying his word. Why are members to obey their Christian leaders who proclaim the word? To follow Jesus, hold fast to Jesus, and to glorify Jesus. Leaders lead, members follow, so that together we glorify Jesus. And together we follow Jesus, knowing that what we have in Jesus is far superior to anything else. In verse 10, the author said, we have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. Under the old covenant, the priests would eat from the altar. That is, they would, that they would eat certain parts of the animal sacrifices. But those who belong to the new covenant have something immeasurably better because our sacrifice is the true one. Our sacrifice is not an animal, 
but Christ himself. And we are united to Jesus Christ. We are partakers of Christ. What we have is immeasurably better. And though we have no lasting city here, we look forward to the heavenly city where we will dwell with him forever. Therefore, here and now, we willingly suffer reproach for Christ together, knowing that he suffered reproach for us. When elders and members are faithful in their responsibilities, we glorify Christ together. John Piper writes, in Athanasius's lifelong battle for the deity of Christ against the Arians, who said that Christ was created, Athanasius said, considering that this struggle is for all, let us also make it our earnest care and aim to guard what we have received. When all is at stake, it is worth contending. That is what love does. By God's grace, the elders of this congregation will continue to contend for the truth of the gospel as we keep watch over your souls. By God's grace, this congregation will follow the elders by holding fast to Jesus and the truth of the gospel. Together, we will bear the reproach of Christ when necessary, knowing and believing that Jesus is worth it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Your word is good. We pray, Lord, that you'd help us to rightly understand your word and rightly apply your word to our own hearts and lives, to our own church family. We pray that our lives together would reflect the truth, the beauty, the glory of your word. We pray that you give us confidence that your word is good. Your word is good for us. Lord, we pray that we together as a church family will glorify Christ. We pray that we would be willing to suffer, to bear reproach for Christ as Christ bore our approach outside the city on the cross. We thank you and we praise you for this. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.